Well, I want to welcome you guys. Glad you are here. Um, before I begin, I just want to say thank you uh, to the many of you guys that have prayed for and supported um, myself, my wife, my daughters uh, over basically what was a very disorienting uh, long season. For those of you that maybe don't know, back in November, um, I was having some issues with my vocal cords and uh, it was basically led to some hemorrhaging and bleeding and uh, they were some, they're just having some problems that, which basically ended up in me needing to have a surgery uh, in early um, February, which after that the recovery was complete silence for about three weeks and then for about another six to eight weeks was uh, very minimal talking, which basically meant um, I was not able to preach or teach or be a part of really kind of what was going on here at the church that I love and have been a part of for the past 20 years. Um, so today, actually, this is the very first uh, Sunday that I'll be preaching and have been able to preach in over the past three months. So, thanks. So I want to say thank you, um, and if, if you've heard me before speak and I sound maybe a little bit suppressed, it's because I'm just kind of edging my way back in. Um, I've been advised by many to just go slow, and uh, if you know me, I normally don't go slow with most things. Um, I just jump into it, so that's why. Anyways, all right, we've got to dissenter in my sermon already. Um, anyhow... What we're going to do is, uh, before we jump in and before I begin to share, what I want to just say is that nothing I'm going to be saying here at this particular time is anything new. It's not novel. Uh, we didn't, I didn't come up with this. Um, the reality is, is that this has been around for a long time. This message, this core message that I'll be sharing with you guys uh, is really the main fundamental foundational teaching of the church. In fact, uh, it's very likely that if you were to go into any church in the world, uh, on this particular day, uh, talking about this particular subject matter, you would probably find great consistency across the board. Um, it's one of those areas in which almost every single person that would call themselves a Christian who follows Jesus uh, affirms and recognizes, and it really has to do with, obviously, what we celebrate today, which is the resurrection. What I want to do at this particular time, I don't want to just simply focus on simply the event of the resurrection, but what I want to really try to understand is how does this event of the resurrection play into the larger meta-narrative of the uh, plan of redemption that God has initiated and that God has started from the very beginning. So in other words, what I want to jump into is I want to look at a passage in our Bibles in the book of Malachi. So if you guys would like, you can open up there very quickly, Malachi chapter 4. I could have selected any passage, uh, really from any of the prophets, uh, but this is just one that I had landed on. And what I want to do is I want to read this passage, and I'll begin to make some brief comments about it. So today is not going to be a day of intense expositional. My words, like I already mentioned, will be brief. This message will not be very long, um, but I want to just touch on some key points. So the passage is Malachi chapter, uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. And what he says as he begins to speak to the people in a day of great darkness and hardship and tragedy and calamity, he begins to imagine God at work, God uh, not just some sort of distant, uh, far-off deity, but God who is near, God who is about to work and do something, that God is going to do something great and profound that's restorative, 
That's healing. And so this is what the prophet imagines. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, it says this, For uh, you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall arise with healing in its wings, and you will go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, Malachi is basically writing to his, his peers, his nation. And if you are familiar with any of the prophets, you know that's what the prophets did. Um, they weren't necessarily anything extra special. They were just people that uh, lived in a day and age not too dissimilar from the ones that we find ourselves in right now. But they were voices that spoke up. And they weren't just any voice, but they were voices that recognized. They uh, dreamed, they imagined what would life be like if the nation of Israel, because that was primarily where the Bible was written to uh, and in was within the nation of Israel. What would it look like if God's people, quote-unquote, God's people, the nation of Israel, who aren't currently acting like, quote-unquote, God's people, what would it look like if they did? What would it look like if Yahweh was here? What would it look like if Yahweh showed up and really made himself known and Yahweh's people responded to Yahweh? How would life, how would society, how would individuals be different? And in this particular setting, in this case, uh, Malachi envisions God showing up in a nation that was at a very peak of darkness. And we'll get into some of that darkness in just a moment. And in fact, there's two main things I really want to focus on in this passage. First of all, which is the darkness. Now, again, the word, even though it's not necessarily used, it's definitely implicit. Because the idea of a sunrise, not just any sunrise, we'll get to this more in a moment, but it's a healing sunrise. It's a sunrise that comes up and it brings light. And it's a sunrise that actually brings healing. Uh, And it's implicit the fact that this sunrise is coming on to what would appear to be a very dark night. And this is the type of scenario that Malachi recognizes that he's in. But then uh, imagines will one day come a sunrise. So within this, there's several different ways in which you, you can take a look at the darkness that's there. And that's what I want to do. I want to look at two specific things with regard to the darkness. First of all, the darkness within the society at large. Now again, just to reiterate, uh, I, everything I'm about to say, for the most part, is either directly from or in the book of Malachi, or it's implicit within historical accounts of the people of Israel's lives, meaning it has happened at other periods of times. So as far as society at large, the people of Israel, they found themselves, even though they were familiar, there was a culture of people that were very familiar with God. So if you think of it this way, the Jews that lived in the time of Malachi, it was a community of people that even though they had certain laws and ways of addressing and thinking about God, at the same time, they basically lived as if God was sort of a chronic vacationer. That God never came around. That God was somehow distant. He was up there. He was far removed. And every once in a while, certain episodes, he would come back into their life. And the picture that oftentimes they would envision is that when God shows up, it's never really good. God shows up, it's through an earthquake or a tsunami or something breaks or some sort of calamity that befalls the community. They had perhaps uh, an idea that God is always angry, that God is always frustrated. In fact, in some ways, it's almost like the way that people, the ancient Greeks would have envisioned Zeus. He's got a lightning bolt in his hand. He's looking for opportunities to simply crush and oppress and destroy. 
And so, not only that, were they a people that were familiar with God, they were also people that were really struggling with debt and economic challenges. And this is, again, recorded throughout the book of Malachi. One of the chapters describes the fact that they found themselves in great debt, great uh, calamity economically. They were people that lived in fear and anxiety as well. Constant fear and anxiety of invading nations or invading nations coming in or little uh, groups of tribes and warlords and terrorists coming into the territory and stealing their land and uh, destroying their families and raping their wives and causing great havoc and destruction and oppression upon the people. So they lived in great fear and anxiety constantly of something like this always happening. These are people that were oppressed by self-serving politicians and leaders and ultimately priests. Again, this is all stuff that Malachi addresses. He's like, look, this is the nation you guys live in. Everybody's in debt. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's living in anxiety of some sort of another terrorist threat or another bomb going off or something happening within the society at large. And then ultimately, finally, what we see is that this was a society that was really had a, had a crippled welfare system. In other words, the ways in which they took care of the people that were the most vulnerable in society was literally uh, dysfunctional. It was not working. For example, some of the most vulnerable people within an ancient society like that would have been foreigners. These would have been immigrants coming into the country looking for a way to get, uh, get out of their ancient na- or their past nation or the past heritage, looking for a place to live somewhere that can take them up. Other people within that culture and society that would have been vulnerable would have been single moms, would have been children, would have been old people. And yet what Malachi is saying throughout the discourse that he is communicating to them within the book of Malachi is that you guys aren't taking care of these people. Rather than helping those that are weak and vulnerable, you guys are crushing them. You're oppressing them. So this was basically descriptive of the darkness that was at large within the society. So the Bible describes a type of darkness. Even Jesus talks about darkness. Now darkness, you understand, that throughout the Bible is oftentimes metaphorical. I mean, there are occasions where it speaks of literal darkness, but most of the time it's referring to some form of a, a metaphor to describe something that is uh, where, where people are bumping into each other and people are being offended and hurting and rather than reacting in love and generosity and kindness and reconciliation and forgiveness, instead they are quick to attack, quick to slice because you don't know what you're bumping into. So you're constantly in anxiety, constantly in fear, constantly worried about somebody invading into your zone, your territory. So you are always, always on edge. So some of us might be hearing this and thinking, this is Malachi's day? This sounds like U.S. News and World Report. This sounds like Fox News that I just watched last night or MSNBC because the reality is the problems have always been the same. Always been the same. And that was not just simply society at large, but also we see uh, individuals within just the sphere of society as well. So we see that because they were in darkness, nobody trusted anybody. Everybody was always worried about someone taking advantage of them. Uh, No one trusted anybody. So if they lived in today's culture, you know, where we've got great technology, they would basically arm themselves with weapons. They would have the best lock systems on their houses and alarm systems on their car and raise pit bulls and figure out other ways in which they can somehow protect themselves from anybody because nobody trusts anybody. 
We also see that marriages were constantly falling prey to infidelity and covenantal unfaithfulness, meaning they were just falling apart. There was, there was no sense of just commitment to each other, to a lifelong covenantal relationship. Again, we see that in chapter 2, Malachi. Uh, chapter 2 also begins to talk about fathers uh, abdicated their responsibility of being good dads. So rather than the dad taking care of their children, dads are taking advantage of their children. Rather than honoring, loving, protecting, covering the children, fathers were just simply abdicating their responsibility. And then finally, we also see that business owners, again, this is actually in chapter 3 around verse 5, business owners, so people that own businesses, actually taking advantage of their employees. They were abusive, mistreating them. They were making them work long hours for very, very little pay. And what Malachi is saying is that society at large is in darkness. Now, again, I realize that in a lot of ways, this is very parallel to the world in which we live in. Because the fact of the matter is, really not much has changed in society. That we still, for the most part, live what the Bible is going to describe as according to the world system, according to the ways of this world, which are ways of fear, which are ways of anxiety, which are ways in which we only, for the most part, trust ourselves. And if we are going to trust somebody else, it's with a very suspicious eye and not for very long. And this is the world in which we live in. It's one of the reasons why there is so much chaos and brokenness and hurt and hurt feelings and betrayal is this is the world that we live in. It is really, for the most part, that sense of darkness. So the question that we've got to ask is that really, first of all, before I get to that question, Malachi, in the midst of that dark society, in that dark scenario, imagines a light dawning. Again, like I already referred to, not just any light, but a healing light. A healing sunrise that will one day come and change the course of the landscape by changing the course of people's hearts. And this is exactly what Malachi and many, many of the other prophets envisioned. So again, the question now is, what happened? What caused individuals, what caused society, which is made up of individuals, to cave in on itself, to collapse, or if it is in any way, shape, or form, built up. It's sort of a false built up. It's not really sustainable. It may not last forever. And what we'll find out, discover, is because at the very beginning, when God created all things, at the very end of his creation, he looks at all stuff that he created and says, it's very good. So God's affirmation of his original creation was that all is good. But if you're familiar with the story of redemption or the redemption narrative, what you'll know is that mankind, God's chiefest of creation, the one of God's only creation, which he says, they bear my image. They're there to reflect me. They're there to honor me. They're given special, uh, unique capabilities and abilities of governing and stewarding and loving and 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 honoring and all of these things that God has given over to man. And yet, God, we see within the story that mankind, rather than using all of that blessing and benefit to serve one another, to love one another, to be generous towards one another, 
turned it in on themselves and became distrusting of God. And then as a result of, you know, partaking of the fruit, they became distrusting of of each other. Because the very first thing that took place after the fall, when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, God asks Adam, where are you? What happened? What took place? And Adam basically completely betrays his own wife. He's like, uh, she did it. She's like, uh, it was the serpent. And so there's this constant blame game going on down, a betrayal. There's distrust. Prior to that, there was no distrust. There was what the Bible describes as shalom. Everything was integrated. Everything was harmonious. Everything was unified. And yet what happened after this sense of fall, the sin that entered into the world, what you find is that there was this distrust, this betrayal, this breakdown, this destruction. It's what C.S. Lewis would ultimately describe as he says it this way. He says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must put down his arms. I think C.S. Lewis is correct. Because in reality, it's not just simply enough for us to say, oh yeah, man, he's got some issues, but we can work them out. Because we've been trying that for many, many years. And what happens oftentimes within that same framework, we say, well, yeah, we got a lot of kinks we got to work out, a lot of issues we got to take care of. But the fact of the matter is, if we can just be optimistic, look, do you know how oppressive trying to put on a smile and be optimistic is? That's oppressive. Because the fact of the matter is, we live in a broken world. I've been through the past four to five, six months of just sheer disorientation. There was nothing fun and joyful and happy about that. Yet God somehow was constantly reminding my wife and myself in which we needed to then carry that on down to reminding our two daughters that are both in high school that somehow we serve a God who is not evil. He does not have a thunderbolt in his hand. He is not wishing our destruction. He loves us. And the reason why we know he loves us is because he actually entered into our story. And this leads to the final thing that I want to close with, is the healing sunrise is really about this story of redemption taking the most radical turn. From God creating all things, it's all good, shalom, to man falling in some ways, as one scholar described it, uh, the fall was like man vandalizing creation. Imagine taking an amazing piece of art, which you guys get a chance to see the amazing piece of art that we had in the front, in essence is the story of redemption. It's amazing how horrifying it would be if someone, you know, took spray paint and they're just like spray painting their little taglines out there. That would be very, someone would get very angry and rightly so. You, you don't vandalize pieces of art, but that's exactly what's happened into this world. God's art has been vandalized and yet What God does is he enters into his story. God scripts himself to become the lead role. It's kind of like if George Lucas takes on the lead role of Luke Skywalker or J.R. Tolkien becomes Frodo Baggins. God enters into the world, into our story, takes upon himself flesh and blood. Lives this perfect life, showing us what life is like, showing us what it looks like. 
giving us not just simply sermons, for example, like the Sermon on the Mount saying, you know, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor as yourself. We oftentimes hear those stories and we kind of turn them into nice moralistic teachings. Look, at the end of the day, if that's all we do with the Sermon on the Mount is turn it into a nice moralistic teaching. Again, talk about oppressive. How can you love someone who hates you? Or is your enemy? How can you go the extra mile with someone who is constantly being abusive with you? Until you understand the fact that Jesus lives out and does exactly what he prescribes in his teaching. He is the one who goes the extra mile. He is the one who allows his face to be hit on the other cheek. He is the one who loves his enemy. To the point of the cross. And yet what we see from that, and again, this is why we celebrate today, and this is what the Christian hope is all about, is that we have this God who is unrelenting in his love. That even though mankind does the best they can offer to God, which is basically to put him to death. Because that's what has happened. That's what it means to uh, be a rebel. The way C.S. Lewis describes it, to use that language, it means to somehow do the best you can to get rid of the enemy. So if mankind is a rebel and mankind views God as the enemy, the best thing that man could do is to try to remove God from his life. Or to put it as another one described it, to emancipate ourselves from the image of God. To somehow wipe away, to remove the image that we bear so that we can remove as many reminders as we can from our lives That we are made in his image. But we can't. Because the very things that our hearts are wired to desire are the very things that God says, those are part of shalom. We want forgiveness. We want love. We want to be wanted. We want somebody to care for us. And God says, those are all the things that come with my package called shalom. But you can't find it through other pathways. This is why the Christian hope is basically focused on this reality. That there, this is why, again, Christians would oftentimes say there is no salvation outside of Jesus. It's not trying to put anything else down. It's just simply trying to elevate to the proper level what Jesus is all about. That Jesus is the one that brings salvation. Brings saving, brings help, brings assistance. And what we see is that even though we try to remove God from us by putting him in the tomb, his love is so overflowing with greatness that he breaks out of the tomb. And it's God's way of saying, not only am I satisfied with my son's death on the cross for sinners, but... That darkness that has pervaded all humanity is coming to an end. The healing sunrise has begun. And so what we see is that Christ, even though he died, we see secondly that Christ has risen. And that this resurrection is really God's bold declaration that he is back on the scene, that he is not a vacationer, as oftentimes some would assume, that he is not distant, that he is not 
angry. He doesn't have a thunderbolt in his hand ready to crush you because what happened was Christ came into this world and he was crushed for you. He was oppressed for you. So that in exchange, what we see with this God, it's God's declaration that really hope ultimately is going to overcome despair, that love will replace fear, that forgiveness will take the place of condemnation, that reconciliation will veto alienation, and that joy will ultimately replace sorrow because life has replaced death. That's what the resurrection is all about. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate. That's what the central message of the gospel is all about. That we have a God that has not abandoned us, even though he had every right to abandon us, to our little vandalism. He comes into this world to rescue. This is the message. And the response that we have is one of worship. Laying down our arms. That's why we sing. That's one of the reasons why Christians... We sing. We sing joyfully. And as a church, it's okay for us to really get excited because this is really good news. Sometimes it's easy for us to get really excited about our favorite baseball team winning a game. And that may be semi-good news. If you're really into the game, really good news. But think about that in comparison to the really good news that God has not abandoned this world to its brokenness, but that has he come into this world to do something about it, to undo it, that the sunrise that brings healing has arrived, and that God has come to take society that has been crippled and broken, to transform it so that it goes out leaping like a calf leaps from the stalls is the imagery that Malachi gives us. It's one of sheer exuberance, celebration, and joy. I'm going to the worship team come on up, and I'm going to close. What I want to invite you all to do is to worship. Why don't we all stand? And if you're here, if you're a Christian, you love Jesus, hopefully this message is perhaps nothing new to you. Hopefully it's something that, if anything, casts in a new light the beauty of this ancient story. I want to invite you to sing. I want to invite you to worship God and give your heart and bring your song and raise your hands and bring your body entirely into this place to celebrate this great God. If you're here and let's say you're not a Christian, let's say you're somebody that is really kind of wrestling with this, we're happy you're here. We have people come into our church family all the time just asking the questions. You're welcome. We're happy to have you here. We want you to ask questions. In fact, we really believe that part of the reason why we're wired to ask questions is because God wants to help us through this life. And that God does give us answers. Not answers to everything. But to the things that, for the most part, point us to the place of hope. Point us to that resurrection. That against all odds... We have a God that is able to do things that seem absolutely impossible. To bring life where there was death. To bring forgiveness where there was nothing but grudges. To bring healing where there was nothing but crippling. To bring life where there was nothing but death. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you 
to wrestle with that reality. Put your trust and your confidence in this great God. We'll have some people up in the front that would love to pray for you. Just right off in the front and side. So it's not going to be weird for you. We want you to just know that they're there because they, they love you. They want to pray for you. And again, I remind you, even though we're at the back, that this is church. Like, we, this is a church service. And so we, you know, unapologetically say that, yeah, yeah we, we want to pray. We want to pray for you because we want to give you the opportunity that if God's dealing with your heart and you're wrestling with these things, that people are here and want to help you. So I will pray. We'll sing a couple songs and then we'll dismiss you guys. Sound good? Are you guys kind of excited or sort of excited or really excited? All right. Let me pray and then we'll sing. God, thank you for the opportunity of celebrating the great news that Jesus is alive, that though Christ died, though he's risen, and will one day come again, you call us into this story of redemption, this healing sunrise. Thank you for that. 